are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Thursday afternoon Q&A. You've come to the right place. Even though where I'm at looks very, very different than the normal studio I sit in in my home in Santa Barbara. Presently, I am in Tennessee, uh, near a town called Camden. Uh, I'm here because my son has bought some property in this general area. And uh, I'm out here helping him just on the property for a few days. So all morning long, I've been uh, cutting down trees and helping him clear land and do things like that. It's a lot of work and it's a lot of fun. But I'm very pleased that I can join here on a uh, Thursday afternoon and join you all for our normal question and answer time, even though I am, in fact, out of town. So uh, with that pleasure behind me, I hope you can see the blue sky behind me. I'm sitting here in a uh, pickup truck, courtesy of Hertz Rental Cars, with the air conditioning on and the blue sky and clouds behind me. It's 95 degrees outside, according to the screen in front of me. Uh, but it's nice and comfortable in here. And this is a spot where I can get a really good uh, cell signal right across the street from performance feeds uh, in Camden. And so I'm pleased to join you here this afternoon. Okay, so let me tell you what we do on the Thursday afternoon uh, Q&A. The first thing uh, we do is I normally begin with a lead question. Not all the time. Sometimes we go straight to your questions on the live chat. But many times we begin with a lead question uh, that's sent in uh, over social media, uh, by email. Uh, maybe it's left over from a previous live Q&A where I wasn't able to get to all the questions. By the way, you can submit your questions, as I see many of you are already doing. And uh, Devin, our moderator, will grab the questions and forward them on to me. Uh, but for our lead question today, it comes from James. And it it's really, if I could summarize the question in one sentence, it would be this. What is blessing based on? And this is James's specific question. Below is your comment on Proverbs 10, verse 6. And then he's quoting me. For us in the new covenant, what is our blessing based on? Please throw more light on this. Okay, um, what James is asking the question on is uh, based on my online commentary. Now, uh, you may or may not know that I have a commentary uh, on the entire Bible. Uh, it's on my website, EnduringWord.com. It's also available on the wonderful platform, Blue Letter Bible. Um, and then it's also available in a few other ways. You can get Lots of my commentary uh, in print, not the entire Bible, but lots of it. We just haven't gotten around to preparing all of it. You, you can get it on platforms such as Logos or uh, Bible Soft. So th there, there's a few uh, ways you can get my comment, but most people get it online at EnduringWord.com. And James's question has to do with my comment on Proverbs 10.6. Now, let me read to you Proverbs 10.6. It says, Blessings are on the head of the righteous, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. So in my commentary, I simply break down that thought. First, the opening thought, the opening line of Proverbs 10, 6 says, blessings are on the head of the righteous. And this is what I write about that. 
This was especially true in the context of the Mosaic Covenant, where God promised to bless obedience and curse disobedience. And then I give a reference to Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. So uh, James is asking a great question. He's saying, Dave, what do you mean that there's a different basis for blessing under the new covenant compared to the old or the Mosaic Covenant? And really, that, that is something that I think is worth us understanding, that God deals with humanity differently on the basis of the different covenants. Now, a full understanding of God's dealing with humanity through the covenants is important, but it has to be put in the context of God's entire work. What we never want to imply is that God offered two or multiple ways of salvation. There's not one way of salvation under the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant and another way of salvation under the new covenant. No, the way of salvation has always been the same. It's trusting in God's perfect sacrifice made through the Messiah, either the Messiah to come. That would be for people, believers before the uh person and work of Jesus was evident on this earth, or looking back to what Jesus did. So we're not talking about different ways of salvation, but we are talking about different basis for blessing. And this is what I mean by this. Under the Old Testament, it was very clear. Uh, there's chapters in Leviticus about this. And as I stated before, Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. It's very clear that God promised Israel as one of the terms or features of the old covenant or the Mosaic covenant. He promised Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you unbelievably. If you disobey me, I will curse you unbelievably. And so we need to understand that that was an essential part of the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai and continuing on in some way with the people of Israel to this day. Although, of course, the, the new covenant supersedes the old covenant for anybody who puts their faith in Jesus, the Messiah. Under the new covenant, the terms of God's blessing is different. Now, let me read you a few passages. For example, Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 says this. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now notice this. If you do this comparison, you'll find that God promised divine blessing to Israel if they obeyed. God promises divine blessing to the believer under the new covenant on the basis of faith. Because Jesus bore the curse, now the believer is put in the place of blessing. So much so that Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, that's a lot of blessing. And let me tell you, you did not earn those blessings by your obedience. No, never. 
and here's the point. Not only did you not earn those blessings by your obedience, um, God gives them to you instead on the basis of faith under the new covenant. Remember what Galatians chapter 3, verse 14 says, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And that is the great promise that we have. It's given to us by faith. So let me summarize like this. Under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel, he didn't make this covenant with the nations, he made it with Israel. Under the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that God made with Israel first at Mount Sinai, God specifically promised Israel that they would be divinely blessed for their obedience and divinely cursed for their disobedience. Again, if you want the clearest expression of that, look at Deuteronomy chapters 27 and 28. Now, under the new covenant, the covenant that was enacted by Jesus in his sacrifice at the cross, and of course the... um, Resurrection being a natural result, an inevitable result of the crucifixion. Under the new covenant, Jesus bore the divine curse in our place. And we are divinely blessed in Jesus. Jesus is the basis for divine blessing received by faith, not earned by faith. Faith doesn't earn anything. Faith simply receives what God gives. So we see that there's a different basis for blessing comparing the old covenant and the new covenant. Now, if you noticed in my explanation, I used the phrase divine blessing because I want to be careful and note something here. I would define divine blessing as blessing that comes directly especially from God. Then there's another category of blessing. I I don't know exactly what to call this. I'm kind of doing this off the top of my head. Let's call this consequential blessing. That comes as a consequence from obeying God's will, obeying God's order. You see, I believe that there is natural consequential blessing that comes when people obey God, um, I'm sitting in a pickup truck right now, and uh, this pickup truck has certain, uh, you know, requirements for its upkeep. You got to change the oil. You got to service this. You got to change that. You got to change the spark plugs or whatever at certain intervals. And if you obey what the manufacturer says, there's going to be a natural blessing. There doesn't have to be a special blessing from the manufacturer. It's just the blessing that comes from using things in their intended use and method. So this is what I want you to grab a hold of. I would just make a distinction here between consequential blessing and divine blessing. Divine blessing is is blessing that's particularly appointed by God. It wouldn't have happened otherwise unless God had appointed it. We know that God is ultimately the father of every blessing. I'm not trying to separate consequential blessing from the work of God. It is God's work. It's just God working in a different way than what we would call um, divine blessing. 
So I, I hope that's helpful for you, James. I thank you for the question. And I think it's a very important question for everyday believers, for you, dear friend in Christ. Stop trying to earn and deserve blessing from God. That's old covenant thinking. That's mosaic covenant thinking. We do not gain blessing under the new covenant by earning and deserving. We gain blessing under the new covenant by believing and receiving. And that's a very important distinction to make. So thank you very much, James, for that question. I'm going to give my attention to the uh, live chat now. Uh, I'm going to take a drink of water. and take a look at the texts that have been sent to me by Devin, our moderator, from the questions that you guys have offered. So blessings to you all. Jane asks this question. Can you tell me the difference between Jewish and Hebrew, which came first? Okay, now that's a fairly easy question to answer in the sense of, yes, Hebrew definitely came first. Uh, I believe... I'd have to do a little more research, but I believe this is what I've heard. Listen, not everything that you hear is accurate, but some things are. I've heard that the term Jewish comes from the identification with Judah. Remember, there was a time when the 12 tribes of Israel separated into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom was called Israel and the southern kingdom was called Judah. And the northern kingdom of Israel passed away there was a time when Judah, that kingdom, represented the, the people of God sort of in its entirety. As well, before the northern kingdom fell, godly people from the northern kingdom came and emigrated down south to the southern kingdom. But anyway, that's another story. So I've heard that Jewish comes from the identification of the tribes of Israel being identified with Judah, the tribe. Now, Hebrew, from my understanding, scholars are a little bit uncertain where the term comes from, but the best guess is that it refers to someone who has crossed over the river. And the river that would be in question here would be the Euphrates River. And this would be a reference to Abraham. There's a sense in which, as far as the Jewish people are concerned, the Hebrew people, if you want to say that, Abraham was the first Hebrew. He was the first one to cross over the Euphrates River as an immigrant to the land of Canaan under God's direction and under God's choice. So, Jane, I can tell you for sure that Hebrew comes back to Abraham. It looks like Jewish is probably coming forth from the kingdom of Judah, though maybe one of our viewers is better informed than I am on that. But that's the best understanding I have. And uh Hebrew would definitely be an older term. The tribes of Israel were called Hebrews before there were tribes. Abraham was a Hebrew before he ever gave birth uh, to Isaac. And, and so I hope that's helpful for you there, Jane. Okay, let me go on to the question from Adonis. Um, Adonis says, what is the Kaduri prophecy? Could it be true? Should be, we be watching for its fulfillment? Adonis, um, I'm going to have to plead ignorance, virtually complete ignorance. I really don't know what the Kaduri prophecy is. Um, 
So you're really going to have to ask that question of somebody who knows about it because I don't. Um, sorry to disappoint you on that. I don't mind you asking the question uh, because, listen, uh, when you add up all the things in the world that I don't know, there's a lot more things in the world that I don't know than there are things that I do know. So uh, I'm never embarrassed or shy about not knowing something. So, Adonis, I just have to tell you, I really don't have any expertise or knowledge of uh, what the uh, Kaduri prophecy is at all. Moving on to the next question from Ethan. It says, do you think that Laodicea was comprised of professing Christians that were content with shallow spirituality? Jesus's words are so harsh, it leads me to doubt their status as believers. Well, I think you're asking a very good question here, and I'm going to turn sort of to the relevant passage that you're speaking of here, having to do with the church of the Laodiceans. Laodiceans. Now, in the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3, Jesus spoke three letters to three churches of that day. But Jesus was speaking not only to the particular churches of that day, Laodicea, Smyrna, Ephesus, Philadelphia, etc. Not only was he speaking to the churches of that day, he was also speaking to all churches in all time. There's things for us to learn from every one of these seven letters to the seven churches of the book of Revelation. Now, the uh, letter to the church of Laodicea, it's the last one. And this is what Jesus says to that church after introducing himself. Verse 15, Revelation chapter 3, he says, I know your works that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed and anoint your eyes with eye salve that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten, Jesus said, therefore be zealous and repent. Um. There is reason to question the salvation of many of these people who made up the church at Laodicea. The words of Jesus are so strong and so uh, forward in this passage that I just read to you from Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 15. Those words of Jesus are so strong and so pointed, and the warning is so severe that it makes us think uh, maybe some of these people uh, are not saved at all. Here's what we need to understand. There is a distinction to be made between church goers and actual born-again Christians. There are people who can be church goers, but they're not actually born again. Um, they've never really put their faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, they may like church. They may like the society of other Christians. They may enjoy the sermons. They may enjoy the worship, whatever it may be. But it is possible for people to be church attenders, but not they themselves 
to be born again. And that may be the situation here. Um, now, this could get into the issue that many people want to talk and that we've talked about before in this regard. Uh, is it possible that some of these Laodiceans could or would lose their salvation? Look, I, I just want to leave it at this without getting into that whole controversy. I don't think there's any dispute that someone who by all appearances is a believer can end up going to hell. Someone who by all appearances now, you, you can actually question whether or not they were a believer to begin. Uh, okay, they were never a believer. They were, but they lost their salvation. That's a debate that is worthy to have. I'm not going to deal with it today. But the essential question is say, uh, yeah, there are people who give an appearance of being part of the community of believers at a church, but they're not. And their lukewarmness in Laodicea, their corruption, their pride, Let's remember that this was a huge difficulty for the Laodiceans. It was their straight away pride. This is what they said. And I'm reading to you from verse 17. I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And that didn't describe their actual spiritual state at all. As Jesus said, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. These were people who were self-deceived about their spiritual state. And so, yeah, this is a thing to take very seriously. Listen, when we read these severe warnings in the scriptures, we should not take the attitude, whoo, well, that's written for somebody else. I'm good. I don't have to worry about that. Friend, that's the wrong attitude to take. We should not take the attitude, um, well, you know, look, I'm a believer. I can never lose my salvation, so whatever. No, we need to take these as uh, definite, pointed, clear warnings to us to remain in the faith and to walk right with our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let me continue on here. Um, let's see. Next question comes from... Jesper, Jesper, thanks for your text earlier. Uh, I don't expect a lot of my audience to know Jesper, but Jesper's a, uh, a friend of ours in Sweden. Jesper's asking this question. What is the purpose for asking others to pray for you if God hears your prayers? Will the prayers of many sort of speed up the prayer request? Jesper, that's a good question because we have no doubt that there is benefit in having other people pray for you. I, I'll tell you how we know there's no doubt. There's no doubt because Paul asked others to pray for them. Matter of fact, I find it fascinating that not only did Paul ask other people to pray for him, but Paul said, and I'm paraphrasing things from different places in Paul's letters. Paul said, uh, I think it was with the Philippians, I know that things are going to turn out well for me because you are praying. In other words, Paul didn't think of prayer as just a holy exercise that does us some good. And, you know, it, um, 
it doesn't really mean anything before God, but it's sort of a nice self-therapy. No, Paul believed that God answers prayer and that it was important to have people pray for you. Now, why is it? Jezra, I don't know if I can give a reason why other than to say this. There seems to be a principle in God's kingdom that the more God's people unite on something, the more effective it is in his uh, kingdom or for the advance of his kingdom. Uh, there's a passage in the Old Testament. Um, again, I, I'll, I'm paraphrasing off the top of my head, so I'm, this is a paraphrase. God says, one of you shall put to flight 10, and 10 of you shall put to flight 1,000. Again, I, I don't know if I'm remembering the exact numbers correctly, but the principle is, is that if one of you puts to flight 10, then 10 of you should put to flight 100, but it doesn't work like that. The second number that God gave in that promise is exponentially greater. In other words, if I unite with another Christian believing in prayer with something, there is some way in the spirit that I don't think I can fully explain, but it's just true. There's some way in the spiritual realm that the power of our prayers is not doubled. It's increased 10 times or 20 times. So this is uh, the consequence of getting God's people together in agreement for prayer. There is tremendous power getting God's people together in agreement for prayer. And I'll say something to you about the way we do prayer meetings often. Often when we do prayer meetings, there's very little real agreement in prayer. And this is what I mean by that. Often when there's a prayer meeting, there's one person praying, okay, which is fine. And everybody else is just very passively listening. Or maybe their thoughts someplace else. Or maybe they're checking their tablet for something to read. Or maybe they're just thinking about what they're going to pray as soon as this person stops talking. What often there's very little is active agreement in prayer with those who are listening. Brothers and sisters, this is the principle of prayer meetings that I think we need to reconnect with and emphasize all over again. If I'm in a prayer meeting and you're praying, and first of all, we do actually agree on this thing that we're praying together with. It's not like you're saying, um, okay, I want us all to pray that I'm going to win the lottery and make a million dollars from the lottery. You know what? I, I don't think I can agree with you on that prayer. So I'm not going to enter. But let's say you're saying, okay, uh, my uh, mom doesn't know Christ yet, and she really needs to know Jesus Christ. Will you agree with me on prayer? Yes, I'll agree with you on prayer. For that. And then in that prayer meeting, as you pray, I'm not just passively listening. I am actively amening. That doesn't have to be loud. I, I, amen, amen. That doesn't have to be shouting like that, but it's just a very active engagement. Involved. I'm thinking about what you're praying. I'm agreeing with it in my spirit and maybe with my voice. There's nothing wrong with that. But I am actively involved with your prayer. And then when it's my turn to pray, 
If it's something we're in agreement on, you're actively involved in my prayer. When God's people do that together in a prayer meeting, exponentially powerful things happen in the spirit. So, Jesper, in one sense, I feel a little bad because I think I have an incomplete answer for you. Incomplete in this sense. I don't think I can fully explain to you why. Uh, But I can explain to you that this principle is true. And it's spoken of many times in the scriptures. So God bless you, Jesper. Maybe uh, maybe we'll see you when we come to Sweden later on this year. We're coming to Sweden uh, end of July, beginning of August. So let the Swedes know. All right. Next question comes from Anahui. I hope I'm saying your name right. Says this. Is it wrong to ask my pastor for biblical guidance when I do not agree with some of his other statements. Okay, Anahui, let me say that is a little bit of a difficult question to answer because number one, I don't know the nature of your disagreement with other statements. Now let's just pretend that it's a very minor disagreement, that we're not talking about big issues. We're talking about relatively minor issues. Listen, well, then definitely you should be asking your pastor for biblical guidance. Absolutely. But Anahui, my question is, if you were to have profound disagreement with your pastor about serious issues, my question would kind of be, why are you still there? What? what What are you still doing there at at that church? Now, I believe that ideally Christians belong to a congregation. That's the ideal. Um, It's not always possible for people to do that. It doesn't always work out. But I don't think that there's any question that that's God's ideal for the believer. For you and for myself to be a part of a local congregation. And people want to know, how do I pick a local congregation? Because... No matter what church you pick, there will probably be some things about that church that you don't like. Look, can I give you a secret? I I was a pastor for uh, more than uh, 30 years, pastoring churches. Well, almost 30 years. I'm adding it up in my head. 28 years, to be exactly. I I served as a pastor over a congregation. Uh, Three different congregations, if you're interested. But... In those years, there were things about my own church I didn't like, that I wanted to change, and that I worked on changing. The the idea that a pastor looks out over his church and says, everything here is exactly the way I would like it, it just doesn't work like that. But but even so, if you're going to go to a church, there's going to be some things that you disagree with. This is what you need to do. You need to find the group of believers around you that's within a practical distance that you can get to that you would agree with most, not all, but most, and commit yourself to that body. Now, it is worth it to ask that pastor for biblical guidance because if you will never ask for biblical guidance from a pastor, I just kind of question, is he your pastor at all? It just kind of seems natural to me there. So, uh, Anahui, that, that's how I would express it there. I, I hope that that um, is helpful for you. 
uh, page asks this question. In 1 Kings chapter 11, verses 29 through 37, the prophet Ahia tore his coat in 12 pieces, then told Jeroboam to take 10. Then he states that Solomon's son shall have one. That's 11. Where's the other tribe? <laughs> Paige, uh, again, I'm just doing this off the top of my head. I, I don't know if there's more clarity on this in my commentary. You can look it up. But the tribes of Israel divided into two kingdoms, 10 to the northern kingdom. Those are the 10 pieces that went to Jeroboam. Then Solomon's son had one Rehoboam. The tribe of Judah from which Solomon's son's Rehoboam came from, that was assumed. The one tribe he held in union with him was the tribe of Benjamin. The kingdom of Judah to the south was made up of the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Now the tribe of Judah was much bigger than the tribe of Benjamin. So the kingdom took on the name of the tribe of Judah. So the participation of the tribe of Judah is assumed because it's Rehoboam from the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David. Uh, but the um, one that he held in his hand was the tribe of Benjamin. So I hope that makes sense to you. Uh, a question from Suji. I hope I'm pronouncing your uh, name right. After 30 years of Jesus's life and before his public ministry, God said in him, I am well pleased. What was it that God was so pleased about even before Jesus's crucifixion ministry? <laughs> Suji, what a wonderful question. What, what was it that pleased God the Father about God the Son? And I'm going to give you an answer that I hope you think isn't joking or flippant, but I'll answer it with one word. What was it that was pleasing about God the Son to God the Father? Everything. Absolutely everything was pleasing to God the Father. That's really the, the right way to see this. Everything Jesus was, everything Jesus did, pleased his Father. You know, we talk about sin, according to Romans chapter 3, being uh, sinning or falling short of the glory of God. Jesus not once in any way ever fell short of the glory of God. Everything about God the Son, his thoughts, his actions, his motives, all of it pleased God the Father. Now, you could say that God the Son progressively pleased God the Father because as he progressively fulfilled the um, plan of God the Father, we see that God the Father was pleased at the fulfillment of the plan. And that's not to apply that there is anything incomplete, just not yet finished, if I could use sort of those similar, but to me, not the same. There wasn't anything lacking, just some things not quite yet fulfilled. So I, I hope that's helpful for you there, Suji. Everything. Jesus was perfectly pleasing to God. Now, the reason why God the Father made that statement at the baptism of Jesus, which, by the way, would have been a spectacular scene. Can we agree on that? What an amazing scene that would be. Uh, the reason why God made such a dramatic statement about Jesus there was that um, 
the purpose of John's baptism in general was to demonstrate that a person was a sinner and needed forgiveness. Jesus, because he identified with sinful humanity, agreed to be baptized. But Jesus himself had never sinned. And that's why God the Father did for Jesus at his baptism what he never did for anyone else. And that's proclaim from heaven, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. So again, I uh, hope that's helpful for there, uh, Suji. Let me go on to the next question from Darren. Darren. <laughs> Excuse me. Can God fill a person with the Holy Spirit without you asking the, that person if they are a believer? Darren, um, I'm not saying I completely understand your question, but let me go just by what I'm assuming that you have. It is possible for God to pour out his spirit on someone who's not yet a believer. Now, let, let me be careful with this. It's not promised. We would regard that as an unusual work of God, but sometimes God does some unusual things. And so uh, without regarding it as a promise that God would do such a thing, we can say that sometimes God does this. Um, for an example of this, it's not a perfect example because it's from the Old Testament, but I think it's still a pretty good one. Uh, Saul, king of Israel, was filled with the Holy Spirit um, even when he was not a believer. Uh, we find a couple occasions of that. And they even made a proverb in Israel about this. Uh, is Saul among the prophets? I'm sorry, I just got a little piece of sawdust from my ear. As I said, I'm with my son working on his land and we've been uh, using chainsaws all morning. So that was a little funny. Um, so God can do this for an unbeliever, but it's not promised. God promises to fill believers with the Holy Spirit and to bestow the Holy Spirit upon those who ask him among believers. That is not a promise. I would regard that as possible, but if it happened, it would be what I would call an unusual work of God. Okay, hope that's helpful for you there. Um, Jimmy asks, is it true in the Old Testament that when they mention the phrase, the angel of the Lord, is that referring to Jesus? Um, Jimmy, I would say this. Again, I'm doing this from memory. I would say um, most of the time, there may be a few occasions where the phrase, the angel of the Lord is used of a being and it's not um, Jesus in what we would call a pre-incarnate experience uh, appearance. We know, of course, that Jesus being the son of God and God the son, his being did not begin when he was conceived in Mary's womb by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. His being existed before that. He's eternal. And so the being of God the Son seems to have made several appearances in the Old Testament. And many of those appearances 
it's referred to as the angel of the Lord. So again, I, I, yes, most of the time, I mean, I would have to do just a, a exhaustive study of every time that phrase is used in the Old Testament and see if every one of them matches up to what people call a Christophany or a theophany. Um, but most of the time, I would say it is a pre-incarnate um, appearance. Anytime you have a being with physical appearance in the scriptures, uh, in the Old Testament, what we're talking about, who is identified as God in some way, then that's Jesus in a pre-incarnate experience. Because no man has seen the Father. The Holy Spirit has no material form. So it must be a manifestation of God the Son before he was conceived, adding true humanity to his deity um, in Mary's womb. Okay, let me go on to the next question from Vivian. Vivian asks, worship in spirit and in truth. What does this mean? Well, Vivian, that's a great question. Um, and it just kind of leads me to say, I want to go over to my commentary uh, on John chapter 4. Because if memory serves me correctly, that's where Jesus uses that phrase. When Jesus meets a Samaritan woman and he talks about worship in spirit and in truth. So I'm looking it up right now on the app that's on my device. You can get an app that features all of my text commentary in English and in Spanish. And let me tell you what it costs at Google Play or at the uh, Apple Store where you get your things. Nothing. It's absolutely free. There's no price for it whatsoever. Um, so Jesus talks about spirit and truth. Okay, this is what I write in my commentary about this. It's a good question. To worship in spirit means that you are concerned with spiritual realities, not so much with places or outward sacrifices, cleansings, and trappings. In other words, it's not just all about the ceremony and the material things, there's a true spiritual dynamic to your worship. To worship in truth means you are worshiping according to the whole counsel of God's word, especially in light of New Testament revelation. It also means that you come to God in truth, not in pretense or in a mere display of spirituality. So to worship in spirit, I would there contrast spirit with material. Sometimes we make worship all about material things. Now, I'm not saying that the material doesn't matter at all in worship, but there must be something higher than the material that we consider as we worship God. So it's very important for us to understand that there needs to be a spiritual dynamic, a spiritual dynamic that goes beyond uh, the music that's played that goes beyond the light, uh, the, the room that you're in, the lighting, the sound system. There has to be a spiritual connection with God. Then again, with truth, I would say it needs to be in accord with biblical truth, number one. But then number two, your heart has to be true before God. You're not faking. You're not pretending before him. You're coming before him very honestly. So uh, that's the best way that I would answer that particular question, Vivian. I think it's a very good question. Thank you for asking that. 
Okay, let me head on to the next question here from Heather. It says, how do you stay biblically meek when in the face of a deliberate false prophet? Well, Heather, I I would say that you don't take any personal offense at the false prophet. You know, if someone is functioning as a false prophet, their real crime, their real sin, if I could use that term, is before God. And yes, it offends us. Yes, it bothers us. Yes, we we want them to stop. And um, if we have any place in church leadership or influence in that, we should do what we can to get people to not listen to such a false prophet. But their real offense is before God. And we can realize that I don't have to take this personally. Um, I can try to expose the falseness of the prophecy. Nothing wrong with that. And then I can really leave it to God to deal with it. You know, we often get frustrated that God doesn't deal with people the way that we think he should. Lord, look at all the damage this person is doing against your church and against your kingdom. That's frustrating. I know. I get it. I understand that. But let me just remind you of something. If God willed it, he could strike that person down in a moment. If God willed it. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't will you to speak out against them. I'm not trying to imply for a moment that God isn't saying that, you know, people should should stand for what's right and all that. But but I'm just saying, if God wanted to take that person from the face of the earth, he could. And again, I just want to emphasize, I'm not saying that to make us passive in the face of error. But I am saying that to add a dimension of our own real peace and trust before the Lord. That we don't have to feel for a moment that it's all on us to fix these things. Um, Their false prophecy is against the Lord. The Lord can and will deal with them, not to exclude whatever way God would want us to deal with it, but ultimately it's in God's hands. Okay, let me continue on here. A question from Jane. Um, About prayer by more than one person, you described a group praying together. Is the power of prayer still increased exponentially if a group is praying for the same thing separately. Yes, Jane, I don't believe that geography has anything to do with it. When Paul wrote the Philippians about them to pray for him, he was separated from the Philippians by geography. So the power of a prayer meeting is not fundamentally found in the geographic closeness that the people in the prayer meeting have. It's the dynamic of agreement in the spirit uh, regarding what God is doing. Uh, Let me go to the next question from Carol. How was Jesus a descendant of David? I know he's called the son of David, but I don't understand the lineage. Well, Carol, um, if you were to go either to the gospel of Matthew or the gospel of Luke, Each one of those show 
the lineage of David, the lineage of Jesus coming through David through two different branches. David had several sons. And look, I always get this mixed up. But I do believe that through Solomon came the ancestry through Joseph and through one of David's other sons came the ancestry through Mary. Look, I might have that turned around, but it was different. It will give you the specific genealogical line. Now, sometimes when the Bible lists genealogies, they're incomplete. Uh, it may skip a generation or two. But in general, I mean, these are a complete list of genealogies documenting how back to King David, uh, the genealogy of Jesus goes, both on the side of Mary, his biological mother, and on the side of um, G uh, Joseph, his adoptive father. Okay, let me go on. I got a few more questions here. Let me say, folks, if you've asked a question and we weren't able to get to it today, first of all, I'm sorry. I, I, I just so enjoy our audience that comes with, but I want you to notice something. I, I look over every week the questions we weren't able to get to, and I try to pick some of those to lead off for um, the next weeks that we do it. Next week, uh, God willing, and if we live, I'm going to be back in Santa Barbara for our uh, live question and answer time. Uh, but let me finish up with a couple more questions here today. One from Ridwan says, is the Sabbath fulfilled or abolished? Ridwan, that's a good way to phrase that. I appreciate the way you did that. Yes, it's fulfilled. We don't describe the Sabbath as being abolished. No, it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That's the very clear teaching of the New Testament. Um, we don't keep the Sabbath as ancient Israel did, but not because God has destroyed the Sabbath, but rather instead because God has fulfilled the Sabbath in Jesus Christ. And it's in him that we have the Sabbath rest. So we have freedom in Jesus Christ. If you would like to observe a ritualistic Sabbath, let me tell you something. You have all freedom in Jesus Christ to do so. Don't be shy about it. You can do it. God bless you in that. Just don't think that Sabbath keeping as the Jewish people did it under the old covenant. Don't think that that's required for the body of Christ today universally. If you want to do it, you have complete freedom in Christ to do it. As Paul says, one person observes the feast or the new moon or the Sabbath. Another person doesn't. Let each one be convinced in his own mind we have freedom in Jesus to do it. But the important thing is, is that we stop trying to justify ourselves in any way to earn and we rest in the salvation that's given to us in Jesus Christ. That is Jesus fulfilling the Sabbath. And that's something given to all of us in Jesus Christ. I do hope you're enjoying that. I hope that those words of Jesus where he said, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. What a beautiful statement. I hope you know that. 
No, look, I, I'm not trying to say that there's not difficult seasons in the Christian life. Of course there are. But our overall general Christian experience should, even in the difficult times, be marked by a wonderful sense of peace and rest and joy in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would have that in your life. Now, I see that Devin has sent me one more question, so let me get to that here. Uh, Moikani, again, I, I pray I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Thank you. Forgive me if I'm not. Um, Moikani says, asks, the Bible doesn't seem to specifically talk about abuse like it does divorce. Should a woman choose between an abusive marriage and consequences of divorce? Well, Kanye, your question is very good. And let me say this straightforwardly. No woman, Christian or not, should stay in a home where she's being abused. And if I could just say a word, husband, if you are abusing your wife, if you are mistreating her in any way, that's a sin you need to repent of. You need to get that right. And you need to give your wife all the grace and all the room and all the healing she needs to be restored from such a thing. There is never a reason for a husband to be abusive towards his wife, either um, verbally abusive or physically abusive. Now, of course, it is possible for a wife to be verbally or physically abusive to her husband as well. I'm not trying to apply for a moment that, that it's not possible on both sides. It certainly is. But there's no place for that kind of treatment in any marriage. If you're too hot, if you're too angry, walk outside, go take a walk around the block. Just don't react in an abusive or violent way at all. And I would say to anybody in a marriage that's suffering abuse, you don't need to stay in that home. Now, regarding what God says about marriage and divorce, you would need to sit down with a pastor who knows your situation and who knows the scriptures and who can't discern these things. It may be that the abuse you suffer is such profound evidence that the person you're married to is not a believer, no matter what they say. Because, listen, being a believer isn't merely a matter of what you say. It's also how you live. That maybe you would have grounds for abandonment by a believer. But it's possible, at least in theory, for someone to use that justification in an unjustified way. So these are things that can't be done with just a, you know, distance kind of thing. Um, it really has to be done with a wise counselor or pastor, just a godly man or woman who knows the scriptures and who knows your situation in truth and can speak to it with the wisdom and the grace of God. So that's what I would say in that. And um, but I do just want to stress that every woman, every man, but I'll, I'll just speak to it as if it's a woman. Every woman has the right to feel safe in her home. 
And I would just have to say that um, how sad it is that the place God would intend to be a place of healing refuge instead becomes a place of fear and domination. It shouldn't be like that. God wants to bring so much greater into our lives and into our marriages. Uh, So I hope that's helpful for you. Uh, Brothers and sisters, hey, I want to say a special greeting to our brothers and sisters from the TWR360 family. We're so pleased with our partnership with you all where our YouTube question and answer is being viewed over your portal. Uh, Thank you for the people who are subscribing to the YouTube channel. We reached a little bit of a milestone in the last week or so. We came up over 40,000 subscribers. I know, according, you know, compared to the big guys, that's not much, but we're grateful for what God's doing. And uh, I just am so grateful for our global audience. I see people here from the UK, people from Europe, people from Africa, people from Latin America, people from all over the United States. One of my greatest joys in doing this weekly YouTube video is the fact that we can do it together as a global body of Christ, where honestly, we might not have a lot in common other than that great thing we do have in common. We share the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we love and honor his word together. So I want to thank Devin, our moderator. I want to thank our whole Enduring Word team. We just sent out a email letting people know, or I guess it's going to go out soon tomorrow. Um, You could go and find our email. Uh, We just are telling people about the good things that God's doing with uh, the ministry of Enduring Word and all the different ways that God's bringing some wonderful, wonderful people along to help us. So that's going to be it for me today. I hope you've enjoyed the clouds passing by in the background. I've kind of noticed as I look. And um, one of the things I just enjoy is that, hey, just because I'm on the road, it doesn't mean that I can't do one of these Q&As. Maybe it won't work in every circumstance, and I'll have to have one of my trusted friends fill in for me again. But it's a blessing to be able to hear. Thank you so much to everybody. Thank you for joining in. I'm glad you could join us, and God bless you. We'll see you again next week. Again, God willing, and if we live, I'll be back from uh, my trip and be there in Santa Barbara. Blessings to you all. Love and grace from Jesus Christ. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.